In honor of Mother's Day, Caitlin, what is the fight you remember getting in the most with your mom mm. as a teenager? I'm cringing. Was it over the length of your shorts? There was some of that, <laughs> but without a doubt, our fights were over clothes my mom picked out for me at Kohl's. Oh. They were too, I felt like they were too cute yeah. and I wanted it to be cool. And some of those dressing room fights were brutal. I don't actually remember fighting with my mom that much, but what I remember is really wanting space and like going up to my room and shutting the door. Mm. And my mom, mm-hmm. my mom hated closed doors. Mm. She still hates them. Was she worried you were sneaking around doing something bad behind the closed door? Honestly, I think she just felt left out. Aww. Sharon has always had a bit of FOMO. I recently learned about something called Romo. Not the fear of missing out, but the relief of missing out. I think that might be more my jam. Mm -hmm. For Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single Christian women whooping it up in New York City from the comfort of our pajamas. I'm Roxy Stone. And I'm Caitlin Beatty. Okay, so last week I saw a play on Broadway that made me really wish I could open my door and invite my mom in for a long chat. Mm, What did you see? It was called Pictures from Home, and it was actually based on a true story on a photo memoir that an adult son made of his parents in the 80s and 90s as they were getting older. Mm. The son, he takes all these photos of his parents over the course of several years, and he's sort of trying to figure them out. You know, you can tell as the play is going on that he's wrestling with their legacies, particularly of his dad's and sort of his dad's version of what masculinity looked like and what success Mm. looked like, very much defined by like the post-war babies. So these, his parents would have been like our grandparents. Right. You can see the son sort of wrestling with it and resisting it and trying to kind of pick it apart. And at the same time, his parents are, you know, kind of trying to justify their own lives, also pick Mm -hmm. apart his life and what he's doing with his life. And why is he spending all this time taking pictures of them? And the whole time they're, they're just getting older. Mm. Did you cry? Uh, I I did not, uh, which is probably something I need to work out in therapy. Um, <laughs> well, there's not a yes or, you know, there's not a right or wrong answer. <laughs> I just, it sounds like it's multi-layered and it might bring up some intense feelings for you and for a lot of people about their own relationship with their parents. Oh, yes. And a lot of people around us mm. were crying. Part of becoming an adult for me has been seeing my parents as people, <laughs> And not just as you are my parents who fulfill this particular role in my life, but almost having a less self-centered view of them. Like my parents are people who grew up in a particular time and place who were shaped by their parents, you know, my grandparents. Mm -hmm. And they are living out their own legacies and their own baggage in some sense and learning to honor them as complicated people and not just your mom and dad. Uh, Yeah. And actually, I think the play kind of did a little bit of that for me in that I kept thinking, like, I would, I would feel like I was the son examining my parents. Like I would, I would empathize with the son Mm -hmm. looking at his parents, but then I would realize that 
his parents were actually my grandparents and he was actually my parents. And so then I was thinking because of the age, like this was happening in the eighties and nineties when my parents would have been the adults examining their parents. And so I kept thinking like, Oh, this was my dad. This was my mom looking at their parents, examining their lives, pushing back against their lives. And then I was like, Oh, and now I do it with my parents. Right. It's the cycle of generations. Yes. (laughs) It just keeps happening. Yes. And, and coming to see that some of what your parents, who they are or how they parented you Mm -hmm. is a direct result of how they were parented and wasn't necessarily something that they chose. Right. There's this moment in the play, which is really more about a father son dynamic, but there is a moment where the mom, she has this great line. She says, sons are always trying to figure out their fathers. And I kept wondering like, is that also true for daughters? Like, are we always trying to figure out our moms in some way? Because there is, in a sense, when you're trying to figure out your mom, you're trying to figure out who are you and who are you going to become as well. Mm, Yes. Well, I'm going to be spending many days next week with my parents and I'm going to be watching my mom. We're there for bird watching, but maybe I'll turn the binoculars on her. (laughs) Well, she's been warned. one thing I know for sure about my mom. The woman had style. Like when Mm. I go back and look at photos of her from the 70s and 80s and 90s, man, I wish I had those clothes. I got some of them, like the belts and stuff, but Mm. she had these amazing belts, these dresses, these knee-high boots, all this great jewelry. I don't know. I can't imagine what people thought of her when she like first pulled up into that small town as their Mm -hmm. new kindergarten teacher. (laughs) Feels like a movie. Yes. The saga of Sharon (laughs) in a small rural town. I always intuited that my mom was, that style was very important to her because we were not a family where the children were allowed to pick out their own clothes. (laughs) My mom selected our outfits for us Mm -hmm. until... Well into elementary school, it was important to her that my brother and I were wearing on-trend, cute outfits growing up. And the reality is, if I had a child, I would be the exact same way. I think I would be too. Cause ki- and kids' clothes are really cute. Yes. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah. I wouldn't want to leave that up to them. No. No. If it doesn't match, it's going back into the closet. If you had to say what is one of your favorite qualities of your mother, what would you say? Mm. I wish that I had appreciated this much sooner in Mm. life. I feel like it has only been in the last several years that I have seen this in my mom, but I think she is really funny. Mm. That's not surprising. (laughs) I mean, I think you're really funny, so maybe you inherited that from her. By patting my mom on the back, I'm also patting myself on the <laughs> Good back. Good job. Way to go. This is the cycle of the generation. <laughs> but she just has these little these little sayings, witticisms. Mm. She loves to whistle and make up songs. She's a really good storyteller. Mm. And some of those quirks were annoying to me growing mm-hmm. up, but like it is absolutely a delightful to be around Mm. now. Like, I can't wait to see (laughs) like what my mom says, you know, or the stories that she's going to tell. What would you say is one of your favorite qualities about Sharon? Well, besides her being the life of the party, which Mm. she is, like she really does 
bring a lot of zest to every room that she's in. She's so involved, which is maybe related. Like maybe this is the fear of missing Mm. out. But when I think about my mom, everyone in many towns in the neighboring area know who she is. Mm. She was part of all of the activities at the school where she taught you know, she was the bookkeeper for church. She was the bookkeeper for the hair salon. She mm. was on the town council. And it sounds like she's a natural leader. She's very civically minded, which is actually true for both of my parents. I mean, they're both mm-hmm. very like big on building community and investing and in, mm-hmm. and caring about their community. And it's really is fun. Like many times when I've gone home and like gone out to eat in one of the nearby towns, someone will come over and start talking to my mom because they know who she is. And then they'll turn to me and they'll be like, did you know your mom was my cheerleading coach? When I, you know, And they'll just mm-hmm. like tell this story about her when she was their teacher or their kid's teacher or their grandkid's teacher. And it's really fun. That is really cool just to see how many lives your parents mm-hmm. have touched, like far beyond your particular family, like being invested in all these other people who now have Sharon as part of their own story. And now she's retired. And this is like the first year she's finally let herself fully be retired and not sucked back into the school system because they try mm. every year. And they tried again this year. They were like, are you sure you don't want to just, mm-hmm. you know, come in a few days a week? So it's been interesting to watch her. Like now they have they are doing sort of like a, a wintering thing in this community in Texas. And... When they were there this winter, she kept texting me. She's like, I'm at a painting class. Well, I'm going to the women's Bible study. I'm <laughs> I'm headed to do a gardening thing. <laughs> I was like, she had uh-huh. something every day. I was like, yeah, of course. Both of my parents are now fully retired. My mom's been mm-hmm. retired for a few years. My dad just retired. And I just, I think about <laughs> how you create structure in your life without a job to go to. I know. And that is honestly terrifying to me. Like you think it's just going to be this open, like I can do whatever I want, but having some kind of structure responsibility or sense of I'm giving back or meaning or purpose Mm -hmm. in some way, like, you know, the golf course isn't going to be it for my parents. Right. They're not going to go to Boca Raton (laughs) and listen to Jimmy Buffett. Like, and I guess that's something I really, maybe similar to your mom that, Whatever role my mom has been in, whether in work or at church or volunteering, she's a person that takes a lot of responsibility. Like she's someone who is able and willing to step up and Mm -hmm. give structure and I don't want to say tell people what to do, although that's (laughs) kind of what it is, (laughs) but like direct. She has these natural organizational administrative skills that... I am absolutely 100% a product of, and I will just do things and say things sometimes. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that was my mom. Yes. <laughs> like, that's actually scary that whatever noise just came out of my mouth when that person cut me off, that was 100% pure mom. And I spent so much of my teenage years really feeling the need to differentiate. Like, right. I am my own person. I'm going to wear my own clothes. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to do what my mom wants me to do. I'm going to be my own person. We're both strong-willed women. Mm -hmm. I want to slam the door of my room and live my own life. (laughs) Yeah. And like, you know, I think in some ways that 
developmental season is important for teenagers and young adults. You need to figure out who you are apart from your parents and their expectations. And at the same time, it is just inevitable that I am so like my mom and I have grown to really appreciate the ways that I am like her rather than resist it. Mm. Also, I think she's beautiful. Yeah, we we mentioned this on a podcast a couple of weeks ago. I think my mom is beautiful too. And also my mom is the one who taught me like everything I know about makeup. She's mm. a Mary Kay lady. That doesn't surprise me given everything you've shared so far about Sharon. Like life of the party brings the zest really into fashion and style. Mm-hmm. It makes sense that she would also have been the one to teach you about makeup. Yeah. I think one of the things that I really misunderstood in that era of my life as a teenager when it came to my mom was how strong she was and how smart she was and honestly what a feminist she was. I mean, how kind of uniquely career-oriented she was because I think, and again, something we've talked about on this podcast, like I think in that era I had some internalized misogyny that I also pointed toward my mom Mm. because I think I thought, oh, my dad's the career person. I mean, he was a teacher, but he taught business classes. And my mom taught the kindergarten, which just felt Mm. very like, of course, like that's what a woman would do, you know? And and I would never do that. I had a lot of ways that I would sort of filter my parents' responsibilities in the world, the work that they were doing by like my ideas of not wanting to be a stereotypical woman. And I would like put my mom in that box, even though she like really wasn't. Mm. She had a full-time job and then she had a couple of other jobs that she did. And they waited quite a while to have kids. And they made a lot of decisions around like her professional career too. And not just like my dad's. And Mm -hmm. I think there were a lot of ways that I had ideas about how I didn't want to be like my mom. And now I can see her as the role model that she really was. Mm -hmm. Some of that is probably putting her in her historical context. Like, yeah, these were like public front facing roles that your mom was Mm -hmm. taking on it. It's not like she was, I don't know, docile at home baking cookies. Maybe she was also baking cookies, but like Mm, she didn't bake cookies. You know, that was disappointing. (laughs) My mom is also not a baker at all. Mm. We talk about that all the time. We're like, it's so impractical. I know. (laughs) Whatever generation above my mom where that stopped, I'm like, it was a hard stop. (laughs) There are like a couple very specific things she will make around the holidays that are passed on from my grandparents, Mm -hmm. but she is not like a cupcakes and cakes. Mm -hmm. I never resented how practical my mom was, but now I see it all the more like my mom's a no BS person. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And again, big surprise, (laughs) (laughs) very direct communicator. (laughs) Hmm. (laughs) Has some strong opinions. And like, I think in ways that previously the strength of our personalities used to butt up against each other. Mm -hmm. I just so appreciate the strength of her personality and the strength of her character too. I think, you know, both Mm -hmm. my parents are people who I've always valued hearing their perspective on things like, I don't know how to handle this situation. Mm -hmm. I really trust their character. Just the kind of person that my mom has become, I really trust and respect And I'm sad that I didn't 
honor that earlier mm-hmm. in my life. There are things I regret about how I behaved at Kohl's as a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing good happens at Kohl's. Let's just leave it there. A lot of my friends have met my parents and my parents are so incredibly generous. For example, one of my friends met my parents without me because they happened to be driving across the country moving and were going to drive through my parents' town and they ended up staying the night at my parents' Mm. place. And my parents like made them breakfast and had this great time with them. And like, I wasn't even there. They'd never Mm. met them before. And Mm -hmm. I have another friend who like borrowed their car for a week when they were in Colorado. And I think part of that is they're incredibly neighborly. Mm. And I think Mm -hmm. that's something that I just grew up taking for granted. And now I realize like how rare that is and Mm. how much I want to be that kind of person. And that's hard to be in New York, but I also yes. like really want to be that and want to bring that kind of spirit to New York and to my friends here. I still need to meet your parents. That's true. I've met your parents. Maybe your parents will be generous with me. <laughs> no <laughs> doubt. They certainly will be. But I'll make sure mom doesn't take you to Kohl's. She she does love Kohl's. Does she really? Oh my gosh. No, this is what needs to happen. Our moms need to go shopping together. Yeah. Th- they would have a great time shopping together. For sure. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Whenever my mom comes to New York though, and she sort of is like, let's go shopping. I'm like, I don't know that New York shopping is... <laughs> we have gone together here a few times and, and it is always kind of like, well, it certainly <laughs> is expensive here. <laughs> I know. <laughs> But thanks for shopping with me, mom. Here. Do you want to buy this for me? Actually, shopping is something that my mom and I love to do together. Even if it's just window shopping, even if it's just like admiring beautiful pieces of clothing, it's something that we share. You know, sometimes we'll be trying something on at a store and send each other pictures. Like, what do you think of this? Actually, my mom will send me pictures too. I should send her pictures more often. I actually think my mom would love it if I sent her pictures, texts, voice memos, Mm. phone calls more often. Okay. This is one way in which our moms might be different because because my mom is so practical and so direct. We don't have a relationship where I'm just going to call her and be like, so, hey, Mm. it's almost like, what do you want? (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I know that I should not call after 8 p.m. She winds down for the evening relatively early. I think my mom would like to talk a lot more than we do. We talk about once a week, Mm -hmm. but she is funny because anytime she calls me and I don't answer, she's like, well, I know you're really busy, but I swear to you, I call her all the time and she doesn't answer because she's so busy. (laughs) Yes. So maybe we should actually talk to our moms. Yeah, I think we should give them a call right now. Theme music. You know them. You love them. Welcome back to Saved by the City, our moms, Karen and Sharon. We thought it would be fun to bring Karen and Sharon on for Mother's Day, obviously. But this time we wanted to talk to them about their moms and the relationships they had as kids and as adults. Hi, Mom. 
Hi, Kate. It's good to be with you in person, even though our listeners can't see that. Yeah, it's great to be here. I'm glad you joined us here near Lake Erie for the biggest week in American birding. So one thing we agree on is that birds are great and bird watching is fun. Um, Roxy and I are taking this episode to honor our mothers in, in light of Mother's Day coming up. And we also wanted to ask both you and Roxy's mom, Sharon, to give us an insight into your relationship with your moms, our grandmothers. So if you could sum up Joan, <laughs> Joan Riggs, my grandmother, how would you describe her, especially growing up? What, what was she like as a mom? Well, uh, Joan was mother to three children and a housewife. She was always involved in volunteer work and almost always at an administrative and leadership level. I never put all that together until much later, but when I look back over her 94 years, Mm. um, almost 95, that was one thing I saw in her that I think she passed on. So, right. So even though I, she didn't work outside the home, but she was involved in the community. Where did she channel those skills? Well, she was involved in Girl Scouting. Woohoo! Yeah, lifelong Girl Scouts here. And she rose to different ranks within Girl Scouting to serve on board of directors and manage large units of Girl Scout troops. She also was involved in the United Methodist Church as the president of the United Methodist Women, also was involved with the Volunteer Firefighters Wives Group, and Mm -hmm. she was Mrs. Firefighter's wife one year. That uh, that didn't come out really clear, but (laughs) she was, I think she was the head of that group for a year. And that meant she got to ride on the big fire truck during the 4th of July parade or something. Mm. But she was Mm. always doing the, what I would call administrative and leadership type Mm -hmm. work in those volunteer roles. Hmm. We still had dinner on the table at six o'clock and the evenings with the family Hmm. She was able to manage Mm -hmm. all of her responsibilities so well and ran a... A tight ship? Yes, I would say she ran a tight ship, although she was always uh, respectful of my dad's leadership role in the family. Mm -hmm. And I don't ever remember that her motherhood ever tried to usurp his fathership leadership role. Were there tension spots? Well, I'm the middle child. (laughs) I would say tension in early teen years, maybe early dating years with your dad when we were 18, 19, 20 years old. Yeah, she wasn't a happy camper, not because she didn't like your dad, because she thinks he's pretty much the prince. But I think because our behavior was probably not what she expected. Hmm. Interesting. Were there tensions later in life after that period? Yes. When I went back to work away from home and got very, very involved with the church we were a part of, which was uh, an evangelical type Methodist congregation. Mm -hmm. And 
she could not embrace that. And I did not get encouragement from her or affirmation from her during that time. And I, I always wondered if it was because I decided to work instead of always be at home or if it was because she didn't agree with the kind of church we were attending. Mm. But that was a hurtful period for me that I, mm-hmm. that, that affirmation didn't come from her when we were two adult women, Christian women, who mm-hmm. should have been able to talk through it. Mm-hmm. She withheld that from me, and, I, and it took a long time to get over that. Mm. Are there things you would say unite us? even though we're of these very different generations? Yes, the things that unite us are, I would say we're not girly girls, um, even though my (laughs) mother um, is quite beautiful in her age, and her mother was too. We've never been ones to, you know, wear a lot of makeup or Mm -hmm. make sure that um, we look just perfect every day all the time. That might have a little bit to do with, the fact that all three of us love the out of doors um, and nature and have a real appreciation for uh, the earth and God's creation. So mm-hmm. that could be a part of that. We're earthy women, <laughs> but we wear deodorant and shave our legs <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> also, all three of us have funny catchphrases, I think. And one of Nani's is something like, geez, Zooey. Jesus. Doesn't she say yeah, that? Yeah, she does. <laughs> uh, well, thank you for sharing about Nani. Oh, you're quite welcome. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. Yeah, thanks, Roxy. I appreciate that. Welcome back to the show. We're glad to have you. Thanks. It's been a while. It has. <laughs> well, Caitlin and I have spent most of this episode talking about our moms, Aww. you. Aww. And now we thought it would be great to hear you talk about your moms. Awesome. Well, I'm going to start with a question that we uh, started our podcast off with this week. Did you get in any fights with your mom when you were a teenager? What did you most often fight about? Well, the most fights were always about staying home. I just didn't stay home much. I was very busy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I was either busy with friends or busy with school activities or busy with my boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that I will absolutely always regret Mm -hmm. is the fact that she was trying to teach me to cook. Uh, yeah, And I didn't like to cook. I didn't want to cook. And nothing turned out very good when I did cook. <laughs> so it was very difficult for me to stay home to do that part. This is funny because this might have come up in our conversations oh in my the gosh. podcast. <laughs> I knew that would happen. I should not have said anything. <laughs> Right. So, yeah, so cooking was the thing that stopped with, with your mom. Yeah, yeah. 
That was that was a bad part. I'm really a good cook when it comes to big dinners. Mm-hmm. No, because that's because true. my mom did teach me that part. But just general daily cooking, <laughs> you just couldn't be bothered. That's right. I couldn't be bothered. I was busy doing things that I wanted to do. You had more fun things to do. I definitely did. <laughs> as a teenager and as an adult, honestly. I'm sure. I'm very sorry about that. <laughs> I did you wrong. Well, what are two or three qualities about your mom? that you think really defined her? I would probably say patience. Mm. She would always take time to listen, and she was very gracious. Mm. My mom was opened up her home Mm -hmm. to anybody. She took care of anybody. And all of the family dinners were always at our house. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Her house was open to family as they got older. My mother took care of my brother that was sick. Her sister, her youngest sister that was uh, um, single, she lived with us for a long time. And when my mother's mother got very ill, we turned our kitchen into a hospital room and my Mm. grandma stayed with us for a long time. When you think about the world that she grew up in, that time period, Mm -hmm. how do you think that era really shaped her? Well, my mom grew up in the 40s of World War II. I think probably the most important thing that she came out of that era with her is Life was sacred. Mm. I think it it meant a lot to her to take care of people. It meant a lot to her to be ready for just about anything. What about when she was a kid? When mom grew up as a kid, they were very poor. Mm -hmm. Um, So at a very young age, my mom knew that it was important for her to be Mm self-sufficient. And the other thing is, (laughs) during that time, it was hard for them to stay at home. So my mom found a man that loved her very much. And at 16, she ended up running away with my father and getting married. Right. Yeah. So that was kind of that was kind of rough to think about that. But at the same time, that was kind of what most of them did. Mm. And she suffered a great deal. My mother had um, many siblings, but there was one sibling that was closest to my mom's age. And they were very good friends. And she was killed in a um, school bus accident. Mm-hmm. And that took a lot from my mother. It was very mm-hmm. difficult for her to to get over that. What did you really appreciate about your adult relationship with your mom? Like after you left home and were married, what was your relationship with her like? Oh, my. <laughs> I called my mom almost every day. Wow. Because we moved away. Mm-hmm. We moved uh, almost 500 miles away from them. We hadn't been married very long. I needed a lot of advice. Especially about married life and cooking. And um, I needed her. I needed her a mm-hmm. lot. She was my my friend. And then when started having children, I didn't knew nothing. And so, <laughs> so there were lots of phone calls back home. How do you do this? How do you do that? And she was always there. Yeah. Grandma was a very special person. She made life fun. Life was um, too short for my mom. She passed away way too soon, and I I miss her still, and I just feel always badly that there were things that happened during our life together that I really regret, and there were times in our lives that she was the most important person. So I just feel probably the part that's really regretful is being a teenager and in college, I just was very sharp. And I can just remember there were times that I just would talk to her and I, oh, mom, you know, you're just so, you just don't know, you know, and then I get angry and 
and storm out the door or whatever. And I really regret those days. But then there are other days I think of her and I just love and miss her so much because she was so kind and so wonderful and made life fun, not only for Rocky and I, but also for, oh, I didn't make, I didn't want you to cry. Yeah, you did make me cry. You know, it's really tough, isn't it, when you talk about your mom? <laughs> it's really tough. I wish I could have, I wish I could have known her longer. I know. She always felt like a real comforting presence to me. Very much so. And I, I felt that way too. Well, thank you so much for sharing with me. You're welcome. Our guest today in her new book delves into her relationship with her mother, as well as her mother's mother, and how those relationships has shaped her and her own approach to parenting today. Marcy Elvis Walker is the author of the new book, Everybody Come Alive, a memoir and essays. And my mom tried to be the best mother she could be with a lot of stigma against her. She's also behind the popular Instagram feed, Black Coffee with White Friends, and the creator of Black Eyed Bible Stories. Our conversation with Marcy is coming up just after the break. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. For religion, politics, and everything else you're not supposed to talk about in polite company, go to religionnews.com. And if you like what we're doing at Say by the City, let us know. Throw us a rating or a review. It goes a long way toward helping get the word out about the show. We have a new review. Yes. The reviewer says, quote, I love how honest and vulnerable Roxy and Caitlin are when they talk about issues of faith, how the church has failed them, and what it means to live as a Christian who is open to learning and changing. Also, there is something encouraging about hearing two super smart and thoughtful women speak. Then they say, I love it. Five stars. End quote. I'm blushing. You can also get in touch with us via email at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. We'd love to hear from you. We are thrilled today to be joined by Marcy, and it's so great to have you on the podcast and to see you in person, kind of. (laughs) Well, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm very excited about what the conversation will be. So, Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. So you have a new book out, and you give a lot of attention in the book to talking about your relationship with your mother. And maybe to start off, just going really, really personally and deeply right off the bat, (laughs) how did writing about your relationship with your mom kind of help you process of figuring out your mother and the impact that she had on you? You know, it was a funny thing. The book, when I first got the book deal, it was called Black Coffee with White Friends. I thought I would be doing more of the same of what I've done on my feed, talking about race and intersectionality and religion. Mm -hmm. But I (laughs) I would be in these meetings with my editors and I would mention casually... Oh, yeah, my mom was married seven times. And they'd go like, wait, what? Or I would say, oh, you know, that, but my mom was in prison during that time. And they just go, hold up. Like, <laughs> are we telling the right story? Maybe we need a different book. Mm-hmm. So hmm. it was really the publishers who suggested that I write about that relationship. I was a little hesitant. Mm-hmm. It's a complicated relationship. I 
was infatuated with her as a child because I didn't live with her full time. Mm-hmm. So I, I really put her in a place of honor that perhaps was more imagined than what the reality was. She was not a great mom, but also she was a, a black woman who had a severe mental illness. She had schizoaffective disorder. Mm-hmm. Writing about her, it wasn't cathartic for me because I'd been through therapy for that. But what it was was really just like the title of the book. It was another part of me that was able to come alive. Like the generational trope of motherhood throughout my family. Mm. Kind of compare that, but not in an unfair way because I don't have schizoaffective disorder. I also wasn't raised in the Jim Crow South. It just made me more forgiving. I think as a child, Mm -hmm. you want a mom that's just like, you know, on TV, I wanted Claire Huxtable, with a little Nell Carter on the side, with a little, you know, <laughs> Maud, you know? <laughs> I wanted, like, this combination mother. And my mom tried to be the best mother she could be with a lot of stigma against her. The stigma of race, the stigma of being a woman, the stigma of being a divorced woman, the stigma mm-hmm. of being a single mother who dated heavily, and then the stigma of her mental illness. So mm-hmm. it helped me to be more forgiving and to actually realize that she really did the best that she could do. You also talk about your own generational mothering, like your grandmother, your mother, you. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's possible to stop generational trauma? And how have you been kind of attempting that in your own mothering? And as you've sort of taken the good and like parsed out the bad of what you experienced? I have a hard time with applying generational trauma to my own story because Mm. I feel like it was more systemic trauma. I feel that I don't know if that trauma would have been present if systemic racism and systemic misogyny weren't so much of the American fiber. Right. I think there was a lot of generational strength and resilience that was passed on to me. Mm. And that's not me just trying to Pollyanna it, but it's just Mm -hmm. me being... Real. I don't think that my mother realized that anything that was occurring in my childhood was traumatic. She Mm. was the daughter of an enslaved man and a domestic in West Virginia and a segregated part of West Virginia. So she felt like she was winning. She had moved to the North. She had her kids in a white, well-funded school. Mm. We all except for one, five children graduated from high school. She never got to graduate from high school. None of us have been to prison. I think for her and my grandmother on both sides, they were winning because they knew of kids who didn't make it. My grandparents in particular could tell lynching stories. Mm -hmm. They knew kids that ended up in prison and ended up, you know, just not making it. So... For them, I think that they didn't feel that they were traumatizing us. I feel that they they were surviving. And yeah. I'm sure that the textbook definition is generational trauma, but I prefer to think of it as a generational resilience. Yeah. And I hope that's what I'm passing down to Max. 
my own kid is the resilience within the trauma because Mm -hmm. that too is a part of the story, but you don't hear about that. I'm amazed that any of us are still here. When you look at the history, I am flabbergasted that not only are we still here, but that we could thrive as much as to put a black woman on the Supreme Court. Yeah, it's not to ignore all of the things that's happened. I'm just amazed that Mm. despite all those things, we've just so continued to thrive and to continue to thrive and to continue to thrive never giving up our blackness. You spend time in the book talking about your grandmother going back Mm -hmm. two generations and a kind of a form of familial racism you experienced Mm -hmm. from your grandparents. So how has that impacted your perspective on and approach to your own parenting, particularly within a mixed race marriage? I think Max was lucky because Max was born of a black love. Max's dad is black. And as a matter of fact, he's here today with our family. Um, We're all here together. So Max was the product of black love. And that's great that they they have that as part of their story. But also... Mm -hmm. I think the thing that most impacted me with the internal racism was the low value of black women. I was often told that white men didn't date Mm. black women, that black men preferred white women. So Mm -hmm. I was always told these things. And as a black girl who is dark skinned, that black men and white men preferred lighter skinned black women. So when I married a white man, I was really doubtful that he was even interested in me because I had been told for so many years that black women just weren't desirable. And before people get all like, oh, that's not true, or, you know, the statistics are out there. If you look at the dating stats on any of the dating apps, black women are the least desired, unless you're Beyonce, (laughs) you know, I think with my kid, I wanted to make sure that they understood race for what it was. For many years, I was very limited in my understanding of it, but I was Mm -hmm. not as silent on it. My parents were very silent about race, about blackness. They didn't speak a lot on it, but they spoke Mm -hmm. more about how we were to perform and how we were to fit in. With Max, I certainly, unfortunately, did a lot of that. And then later had the course correct. But also with Max, very early on, I I wanted them to have black baby dolls and I wanted them to have play with non-gender toys. And I wanted them to uh, read books about black children and to read books about other cultures. So like that was something different that I did. But then again, my parents were part of the 70s and the most the most diverse show probably for children on TV was Sesame Street. They were all different colors, Mm. right? My parents just didn't even have like all that we have now. I I would have loved to have like Hair Love, that book, or Soul V by um, Lupita Nyong'o. I would have loved to have had that book. 
as a kid, but I had corduroy. And I don't even know if that kid was black, but she looked dark enough. And, um, and I had um, snowy day. And, and mm-hmm, my sister, mm-hmm. uh, this is so funny. I have three older sisters and an older brother. I'm the baby. And, but the sister who's closest in age to me, we were convinced that the Berenstein Bears were black. <laughs> I don't know why we were, but we just claimed them as, oh, they're black. I don't know why. So we were creating like our own representation Mm. (laughs) wherever we could find it. So I feel like my parents did it the best they could. And I feel that I did the best that I could for a while. And then I did a whole lot better when um, I sent my kid to a white Christian school expecting that they would love them. Yeah. What was the tipping point there? Slave debates. Plain and simple, hearing that the school in the year 2014 was still doing slave debate. Mm. Well, actually, not even still doing. I had never even heard of such a thing. Yeah, I'd never heard of that in my before. life. But I was raised in the Midwest and we were in the Bible Belt of Texas. So when I heard slave debates, I've told friends that it was like in the movie Get Out, I was in the sunken place. And mm. didn't mm-hmm. know that I, that what was happening was hecka racist until mm-hmm. it was like someone snapping a finger and me coming out of it mm. and saying, wait, hold up now. You're saying mm. that these kids are going to debate for and against slavery and they have to do both parts. That So my kid would have to mm. do a mock trial for slavery. My black child, the only oh black gosh. child in that room... And then oh my gosh. they would have to do one for against. So I was like, it's problematic on many levels, not just many. for my black child, mm-hmm. but that you are telling white children to go research all the positives of slavery, to which, in case y'all mm-hmm. are wondering, there are none, <laughs> and present it for a grade. And we're in mm. Texas. Yeah. We're in a slave state. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was the wake up. That changed everything. Mm. Yeah. I've never been the same since that. That that was it. Mm. You're alluding to sort of the start of Black Coffee with White Friends, mm-hmm. which was actually sort of born out of your relationship with your child. You were writing letters to them. Yeah. So how has Black Coffee with White Friends been a form of mothering for your own child, obviously, but maybe also in like a larger metaphorical sense? Oh, I like that. When my mom died... She passed in 2010. I couldn't go to her and ask her, okay, so what was it like to live in the Jim Crow South? I hadn't thought to ask those questions. And here's the thing. None of us do. When you're Mm -hmm. 20, 18, 19, 10, you're Mm -hmm. not really trying to hear a parent. (laughs) Mm -hmm. My kid is not like interested in hearing like my theories on you know our country's democracy and the state of democracy today (laughs) um they have youtube people that they rather get that information from (laughs) right but one day i won't be here and i i do believe Mm -hmm. that the things that i write now will be of great use for them later when they are ready to have those kinds of conversations with me. Mm. As far as mothering people who follow me, I don't know if I mother. 
because I, I decided that I would tell the truth and people could accept that truth or not. Don't want that truth, unfollow. That's fine. <laughs> the other thing mm-hmm. I would do is I wouldn't give passes. I wouldn't say things like, oh, it's okay that you're colorblind. Mm-hmm. You're just trying to mm-hmm. be a good Christian. I, but I would say things like, it's okay that you didn't know what you didn't know. Because mm-hmm. none of us were taught it. Mm-hmm. Now, what are you going to do about what you didn't know? You just can't stay there. You have to do something about what you now know. As Maya Angelou says, once you know better, you got to do better. And so my mm-hmm. hope is that if I'm mothering, it's hopefully in that way of saying, okay, now that you know better, mm-hmm. what are you going to do? As a final question, why do you think Black Coffee with White Friends has made such a splash and resonated with so many people? I have no idea, child. I do not. <laughs> I'm being for real. I do not know. I started off thinking maybe 30 of my good friends would follow and it would be yeah. a way for us to have a conversation about race. Mm-hmm. And every day I would get like a hundred more followers, a hundred more followers, a hundred more followers. One thing that has helped its growth, I think, is that I've been focused on one group of people and that's white American Christians. Like that has been the target Mm -hmm. of who I wanted to most speak to. The second thing that I think has helped, unfortunately, is black trauma and death. I think. Yeah. Every time that someone has been assassinated by the state and it's a black unarmed person, my numbers went up. I hate mm-hmm. that mm. fact. But what I've done is, is to try to keep people there, even though I know how they got there. Yeah. I very rarely post about black death now. I feel like we should be past that. Yeah. Like no one should be shocked anymore. I don't want you to be shocked that a white man shot a young mm-hmm. black boy for no good reason. Mm-hmm. I want you to already be doing the work mm-hmm. because that's what that whole the black squares during George Floyd. That's what that all right. was about. And if if you are still in that place where it's salacious and you just want to be shocked and outraged, mm-hmm. that doesn't help us. Mm-hmm. That doesn't help you. I've read a lot of interviews with the mothers and the family members, Sandra Bland's family, Samaria Rice, Tamir Rice's mother. Mm-hmm. Her interviews have broken my heart. Michael Brown's mom's interviews um, have broken my heart. Sabrina Fulton, that is Trayvon um, Martin's yeah. mother, have broken my heart. And what I don't want to do is on the anniversary of their kids' deaths, their assassinations, the last thing I want to do is to add to their pain. So I'm being a lot more careful about that. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for going down a few interesting trails with us. <laughs> I know I know, we kind of had a wide-ranging conversation, but I really appreciate you, you being game to go there. Yeah. Thanks so much, Marcy. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Have a great afternoon. Saved by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Julia Windham and Elizabeth Joy Windham. Chaz Rousseau put together our look and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. 
We are Roxy Stone and Caitlin Beatty. Thanks, Thanks for listening. For listening. <laughs> I sent your package a few days ago, so you should be getting it this week. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Exciting. That's a very mom thing to it do. Is, isn't <laughs> it? To, send, to send me a package <laughs> the week of Mother's Day. Right. <laughs> well, it just happened that way after returning from Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll watch for it. Okay. <laughs>